This is a reading from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going up to the first. The workers who were hired around five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. And when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work in the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. All right. Welcome, Covenant. It's great and wonderful to be here with you this morning. I hope and pray that you all are well. I've had the opportunity to really dig into this story this week, and it's really kind of helped to open my eyes. You may hear, and I'm sure you will, some things that may be familiar to you. Uh, if you were in the book reading, The Politics of Jesus, uh, this was a chapter in that book, and, and there were a lot of insightful things uh, that Mr. Uh, Hendricks had to say. So you may hear echoes of that in the sermon this morning. In this reading, I bet you've always been told that God is the generous master who rewards the workers equally. In other words, that all can be saved. God provides salvation to all, thereby upsetting the workers who toiled all day. The Jews, in other words, is an analogy. The Jews who have been there since the beginning are now being given the same thing, salvation, that the Gentiles who are new to this are getting. They, get, they, they seek and they get the same rewards. I'm here to say that we should always be deeply suspicious of allegorical readings that turn to favor Christians at the expense of Israel or Jewish individuals, Jewish followers of God. Jesus' parables are meant to get us to think critically about the world and the world that we've constructed free us from the cultural shackles of self-deceptions and enable us to discern more clearly how God works in the world. Oftentimes we want to take the 21st century mindset that we have, the Christian mindset that we have, and look at it in that perspective. But we forget Jesus was a Jew talking to others in the first century. 
his pitch to the audience was probably not what we in the 21st century want to reference. Instead of allegory, we should read the story on its own terms as a straightforward account of the interactions between a landowner and the day laborers who work for him. See, we're tempted to see the landowner in godlike terms because he is powerful. He hires workers all day long and pays them all equally. And he declares his own goodness and justice. We should remember, however, that at the end of the day, the workers are all just as vulnerable and powerless as they are at the beginning of the day. Except that possibly what we see then is they've even lost their dignity in their day's labor. The injustices are actually intensified. They're not overturned. Day laborers constituted a limitless and disposable fuel, bodies to be burned up, that made the ancient economy run. Our world is again full of such bodies who make our clothes, they produce our food, and they assemble our electronic gadgets. Yet these people never gain enough traction to be able to join the world of consumers. The parable thus pulls back the curtain on the ways of our own world works. And it would have for Jesus's audience too. Aubrey Hendricks in this book clarifies the problem with this analogy that God is the landowner, the one that a lot of people want to go out and preach saying he's, you know, he wants to provide equal, be fair. He says this interpretation uh, uh, is, is actually inaccurate. If you start looking at the Greek term of householder, oikos despos, oikos means house. And despotes is the source of the word master. So house and master. The parable tells us that in addition to any house or houses he might have possessed, this oikos despotes is an actual landowner and owns vineyards so expansive that he must return repeatedly for laborers to work them. This describes a rather large estate that could be considered more than just a simple farm. Like he's just going out trying to find somebody to help him work his farm with him. It's now an estate. And what we would call an estate in more recent terms will be something more like a plantation. And if we change this notion of householder, to plantation master, we start to recognize an issue here. He's a plantation owner or a plantation master, which is certainly less benign term than householder. It's probably a more accurate term to be true. To provide us with a simple illustration, Aubrey Hendricks goes into his book and he gives us this kind of simple little story, a story of his childhood. He says when he was nine years old, his father was a self-employed brick mason. He began taking him to work with him during his school vacations, not only in the summertime, but even like in winter and fall when he was on break and spring. The first thing they would do is they would stop at a particular corner in a poor section of town. Although we never arrived later than 6.15 in the morning, he says, 50 or more men in dusty work clothes would already be there. Greasy brown bag lunches in hand. He said his father would call out as would the other drivers who would just kind of 
you know, kind of ease up to the curb and an eager worker or two would scramble into the open truck bed and they would huddle against the morning chill as they sped down the highway. Hendricks said that his father usually told the workers beforehand how much he's willing to pay for a day's work, but sometimes he forgot and it was when they got at the place. And that could have been somewhere between an hour and an hour and a half uh, down the road. But he said he never remembered any worker ever asking what he would be paid at day's end. Each apparently trusted or at least hoped to be treated fairly. But all seemed resigned to take whatever they could get. Apparently, they were relieved just to get a day's work. Honestly, I think we've probably all seen this street corner before. Maybe it's a grocery store parking lot or a gas station side street, a spot where day laborers gather to wait and work. In Thomasville, that's where I grew up, you knew when it was time to pull tobacco because actually those corners that would be full are now empty. All hands on deck to bring in the crops. It's not just the local street corners today either, but we see it in media outlets that portray sweatshops going on in Asia, agricultural laborers in Central and South America, and dare I say, fast food and retail workers in the United States. It is true that at one level, the landowner treats the workers with equality. He goes hunting for workers throughout the day, and they keep showing up until the very end. It is a landowner's dream market, right? He pays everyone what they had agreed to be paid, and in some cases, those hired at the end even more than what they might have expected. If we are so inclined, we may look at our own world and make the same arguments. Sometimes we hear people say, well, fast food workers, they're getting paid. So, so are the retail workers, right? They have to start somewhere. At least they're making an honest living. Some of us may even go so far as to pitch the fallacy that it's much cheaper to live in China or South America, so they should be happy. They're working, insinuating that the workers are making enough and that the factory workers and corporations managing the fields are doing what they're supposed to be doing. All this apparent justice is, however, cast into question by the landowner's actions. So, yeah, they may try to say he's being equal, he's doing what he's supposed to be doing, but it's cast into question by his later actions. Words from the point that the payments begin to be made. He stipulates that those hired last will be paid first. That's in Matthew 20, verse 8. Why? This arrangement serves no evident purpose but to make his gesture of equality evident to those who worked all day. If the goal is to really create equality among the workers, the landowner could do so without making a public display of it. Apparently, he intends to provoke a reaction. He uses his interaction with first hired, last paid workers to declare his own justness and his own goodness, right? After all, he's paying those who worked all day just what he had agreed to be paid. He also is only doing what is right with what belongs to me. Did you get that? Did you hear that? What belongs to me? The implicit message in these words is that he, <laughs> the issue is that it all belongs to him, including the workers with whom he can do with as he pleases. 
he addresses one of them as friend. And we're like, oh, friend, that's a great uh, title. We, we want to hand that word out. And, and that meaning has a lot of positive connotations to us. But really, if you take it in the context of Matthew as a gospel and how he uses the term friend, you see it's not so positive. You'd almost hear him say friend with a sneer or fella, right? For example, in Matthew twenty-two twelve, a king uses it to address a man that he is about to have bound hand and foot and thrown into the darkness because he wound up at a wedding dress a little improperly. And we also hear it come from Jesus's mouth himself when he calls Judas friend in the Garden of Gethsemane as Judas is about to betray him. The landowner's apparent graciousness and justice are, in fact, vicious in disguise. It's basically a pretty package with a bomb in it. He's been generous, but only with some and in a way that means to incite envy. We should hope that this is not the way God acts. Why have so many readers in our history of the church wanted to make this landowner into a God figure? Why do we so often think that the powerful figures, whether they be kings or landowners or fathers, represent divine authority? Is God really like these? Or are they merely God-like in our mind's eye? Why do so many of us want uh, to believe that the powerful people say and believe in it, even when it flies in the face of reality? We allow powerful people today to dictate our lives. We allow the wealthy to control our economy and decide who is worthy and who is not. Who deserves health insurance and health care and who does not. In fact, we find ourselves learning more and more about those who appear powerful in the story. We find that those who obtain power, even if by moral means, oftentimes turns the situation upside down to maintain that power. His or her moral compass goes out the window, and the individual oftentimes lie, cheat, and steal to keep that power. He or she will manipulate, twist, and oppress to do whatever it takes to keep the power. Why do we continue to fall for the narrative the powerful person in the story is God-like? I'm constantly hearing people compare powerful people in authoritative positions as they are like David in the biblical narrative. They are like Jesus. They are like Abraham. They are like Moses. When in fact, to, to many, they want to call these people holy, sacred, beloved. When in fact, I say to them, your interpretation is flawed. Your rendering of who is holy, who is sacred, and who is beloved is dead wrong. The parable teaches us to read our world critically. Jesus' audience was a collection of day laborers. So who he was talking to in the midst of this story were day laborers, people who were under the power-hungry thumb of the Roman government. The hearers of Jesus' message that day would have been angry by the parable's end. They would have angrily recognized the down-to-earth reality of exploited wages and the arrogant, insulting demeanor of the plantation owner and his sense of entitlement to who uh, entitlement to do as he chose to do. After all, they experience it every day. 
the audience would have recognized the story, but I have to mutter sadly under my breath the same thing. He probably didn't recognize it before he said something. They lived it. However, it's likely that until that moment, many workers had really, hadn't really understood all the dynamics of their plight. Because in their scuffle to survive, they had little opportunity to reflect upon the forces that tossed them to and fro. Lacking time and perspective to contemplate their predicament, more often than not, they simply never identified the causes of the economic violence that engulfed them. Most had simply accepted their lot as the order of things, as their plight was natural and probably God-ordained. This is how workers in peasant cultures throughout history have typically responded to oppressive circumstances. There's no reason to think that the response of the peasant workers in first century Israel would have been different. You see, when Jesus' audience heard him tell this parable, they would have immediately understood who the landowners and who the workers were. Jesus' audience lived under the occupation of the Romans. Truthfully, the Jewish landowners in occupied Palestine would have had very few choices. Landowners could oppose the Romans and lose their land and then have to resort to becoming day laborers themselves or they could do what they most of them did, resort to becoming oppressors themselves, doing the dirty work of the Romans and keeping their land, participate in the abuse of their neighbors. Most of them chose the latter and simply longed for divine intervention in the future. They longed for a Messiah who would change their world and end their oppression. But until then, they would simply make an honest living following the Roman government's rule. The crowds, the crowds that flocked to Jesus are looking for some sort of revelation about when and how the oppressive Roman occupation that set neighbor against neighbor was going to end rather than point to some far off distant salvation, rather than point to that salvation, Jesus said, look, look at yourselves. Jesus points directly at the very crowd longing for salvation and says that they only when landowners stop oppressing their neighbors and when they recognize their own plight and stand against it with a long dreamed kingdom of God become reality. Jesus knew the beleaguered workers could never change their circumstances if they did not understand their own reality and the reasons for it. So he grasped their attention in this moment, in this story, with this parable that highlighted the true injustice of their common situation. He painted in bold strokes the aspect of their plight they had not always focused on. If they ever had the ruling elite's notion that their wealth gave them the right to play God, deciding what is right based on their own interest alone. He showed how the elites hid their role in the workers' pain and desperation by blaming them for their own plight. He made plain how the rich feigned ignorance of the cause 
of the masses poverty and suffering when he knew that it was their own schemes and their own machinations that robbed the people of their ancestral homes and patrimonies. He brought to light in this one simple story with these day laborers, how the rich anointed their own evil as good and the workers righteous discontent as evil. Jesus's process of deciphering, explaining, and laying bare the forces of economic violence that kept the people desperate and poor laid the groundwork for them to challenge these forces. We should also question this corresponding vilification of the workers, something we see all the time. They might indeed have accepted their pay and gone home happy that everyone got what they needed to make it another day, but few of us would be happy in a system of this kind of so-called justice. We shape our identities and our sense of worth by constantly comparing and contrasting ourselves with others. We, we want fairness, we want equality, but usually only when it serves our interest. But not if it means that we all get the same prize at the end. Where's the reward in that? Regardless of what we were paid, all the workers went home seeing more clearly the vast gulf that exists between the landowner and themselves. They had gotten paid, but the landowner has now taken their dignity. And whatever vestiges of power they might have once have possessed, they will be back in the marketplace again tomorrow. Nothing has changed but the self-respect they have wrenched away. We must take from this an understanding that Jesus was doing the only thing he knew to do at the time. He was encouraging the laborers to recognize the injustice before them, recognize the broken and unfair system that surrounds them, reminding them that they are worth so much more than they are valued in the corrupt system in which they live. Jesus' strategy, strategy treats people's needs the day laborers that were before him that day as holy by seeking to raise their consciousness of the forces that hold them hostage to poverty, oppression, and want. In an important maneuver for those of us today who also seek to treat people as holy by freeing them from economic shackles, we must be unrelenting in our efforts to lay bare all to see the factors that today hold people hostage. What are those things? Corporate cronyism, the unjust tax policies that benefit the haves and the have mores beyond all other, the unjust social and economic barriers to upward mobility, and the arrogance and duplicity of the modern day corporate plantation owners, and the politicians in cahoots with those owners. And they define good and evil not by the tenets of the biblical faith that they profess to believe, but by whatever serves their own selfish interests. Like Jesus, we must help workers understand what is their fair share, what are the fruits of their labor, how to get it, and what and who stands in their way. In the parable of the workers, in the vineyard, Jesus reflected his profound concern that workers and laborers be treated with fairness and justice. He also expressed his outrage at the economic violence 
with which wealthy enrich themselves at the expense of those who bear the burden of the day and the scorching heat of labor, either the literal heat or the figurative heat. He raised, Jesus that day, speaking to those laborers, raised the people's consciousness of the forces that conspired to exploit them and brought to their attention the solidarity through which workers could change their condition. The parable of the worker in the vineyard is a profound expression of Jesus's care that the real needs of all who labor should be treated as holy. May we all see it this way and seek justice and peace and honesty, equality forever. Taking up Jesus' mindset and becoming a beacon of light that shines on the corrupt and disgusting systems that plague our world, the systems that harm, oppress, and devastate so many in our world, just as Jesus opened their eyes on that day with those laborers in the first century, we must stand up and do the same thing. We may go and do likewise. Amen.